Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode contains distressing themes and is intended for mature audiences only. Listener discretion is advised. On this episode of They Walk Among America. On the east coast of Florida lies the small town of Port St. John, which in the 1990s was home to around 5,000 residents. Indian Lake separates the town from Cape Canaveral and the Kennedy Space Center, the home of NASA. The homes of Port St. John were built to house workers for NASA's expanding programs at the Kennedy Space Center, and the neighborhoods were mainly blue-collar. Most of the homes in Port St. John were almost identical, bungalows on lots dotted with palm trees. The vast majority of the residents at Port St. John worked at two of the launch sites, located on bits of land that protruded out into the ocean. Just a stone's throw from Indian Lake is the residential neighborhood of Tope Street. Here, the properties are primarily one-story, ranch-style homes. In the 1990s, life in Port St. John was placid. On Sundays, the local radio only played gospel tunes, and in the evenings, Residents sat outside their homes under the humid heat and chatted with neighbors while children raced through the streets on their bicycles. Serious crime in Port St. John was rare, but on January 6, 1999, a crime sent shockwaves throughout the close-knit community. Frida LaBeouf was at home when she heard a frantic knock on her front door. She opened the door to find her neighbor's two young children, who exclaimed that a tragic accident had happened at the family home. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Nina Instead, and welcome to Episode 61 of They Walk Among America, a joint production between the Law & Crime Podcast Network and They Walk Among Us, the award-winning true crime podcast. Stacy Cole was 18 years old when she met 24-year-old Curtis Jones. At the time, she was working in a Kentucky Fried Chicken. He ordered lunch, but left the jalapeno peppers he ordered behind. Stacy ran outside to hand him his missed item, and he brazenly asked for her phone number. Just three months later, Stacy was pregnant with their first child. On June 6, 1985, Catherine Nicole came along. She was named after Curtis's aunt. Catherine was lovingly nicknamed Munchie for her small size but massive appetite. 
Less than a year later, on May 31, 1986, Curtis King Fairchild was born. Stacy recalled, He was my first son. I wanted him to be a king. Curtis was known as Pee-wee because his older sister towered over him. The family moved into a single-story home with a small creek running behind it at 985 Tope Street, Port St. John, after the birth of their two children. Curtis Sr. got a job as a maintenance worker at the Kennedy Space Center. The couple decided to marry on May 9, 1989, but within three months they separated, and Stacy moved to Kansas. She later said she couldn't bring Catherine and Curtis with her because they were mixed race and her mother would not accept them. Curtis Sr. found himself in trouble in September of 1989 when he was charged with attempted murder after shooting two people at a pool hall. He claimed the shooting was in self-defense, and the charges were later downgraded to a misdemeanor. In 1994, Curtis Sr. and Stacy were finally divorced, but Stacy stayed in contact with her children. They visited her in Kansas over the summer. She said that each time they visited, Curtis would always ask Stacy whether she still loved their father. Over the next couple of years, Stacy married and divorced, then married again. She had two more children. Curtis Sr. also moved on. He had various girlfriends over the years, including one that lived with him and the children for four years. Catherine and Curtis always made sure to keep their mother appraised of the new women in their father's life. Some of the girlfriends they were fond of, some of them, not so much. Then, in 1998, Curtis Sr. met a 29-year-old woman named Sonia Nicole Spates in his hometown of Mobile, Alabama. They hit it off immediately, and by summer, Sonia moved from Alabama to the family's home on Tope Street. Curtis Sr. recalled the relationship. I've been in relationships, but with Sonia, it was more like I saw a future with her. I saw the love she had for my kids. Not too many people would do that. Sonia had two daughters from a previous marriage, Jessica and Inez. Their father was a man named Ricardo Spates, who was currently serving a 20-year federal prison sentence for conspiracy. Their two daughters were in the custody of Sonia's parents over in Alabama. Jessica and Inez visited the family in Port St. John and got on well with Catherine and Curtis. Catherine took on the role of protective big sister, while Curtis always made sure to make them feel welcome and include them in any games. Curtis Sr. said that the relationship between him and Sonia was idyllic. Over time, they began speaking about the prospect of marriage. Stacy always made a point to talk to the new women in Curtis Sr.'s life. After all, these women were going to be around her children. When she first spoke with Sonia, she was taken aback by how nice she was. She recalled, Everything she said about my kids was nice. She had two children of her own, and her daughters really looked up to Curtis and Catherine. She said they thought Kathy was especially cool. She said she wanted my kids to be good role models for them. In October, Sonia began working as a teacher's aide at Jefferson Junior High School, an alternative high school on Merritt Island that helped children with emotional problems. Her boss, Gary Schifrin, remarked, She had a wonderful rapport with them. In many respects, she was their best friend. Those students look for that kind of attention, and she provided that for them. As for Catherine and Curtis, 
They had both been enrolled at Space Coast Middle School, where they were known for disruptive and troubled behavior. According to classmates, the siblings were constantly in trouble. One recalled, They used to try and start fights with a lot of people. Their behavior and actions were picked up by a handful of people, and both were sent to complete a nine-week assignment at the school where Sonia worked, the alternative school for children with emotional problems. Towards the end of 1998, Catherine completed the nine-week assignment at the alternative school and was allowed to rejoin her classmates at Space Coast Middle School in the new year. Curtis had been assigned to the same program as Catherine in April of 1998, but unlike Catherine, his behavior failed to improve. He was reported to be aggressive, and while Catherine was allowed back to Space Coast Middle School, Curtis was sent to Whispering Pines a last resort school in Titusville for troubled students. Brevard County School District spokesman Bill Johnson said of Whispering Pines, they either obey the rules or they hit the road. Despite glaring problems in school, both Catherine and Curtis were reported to be very bright children. Catherine sang in the school chorus while in elementary school and had even performed at Walt Disney World. As for Curtis, he excelled in sports. Catherine and Curtis's bad reputation at school was countered by their reputation in the neighborhood where they lived. Carmet Polson lived across the street from them and referred to the siblings as her adopted grandchildren. Any day Carmet saw Catherine and Curtis coming home from school, they would make sure to run over to say hello and give her a big hug. Carmet said of Catherine and Curtis, They were such nice, happy, clean children. On some occasions, Catherine and Curtis would come over to Carmet's home just to spend time with her. They would watch television and chat, and Catherine had spoken about wanting to join Carmet's Bible study group. She conceded that Curtis was somewhat wild, but he was a young boy, and as for Catherine, she said she was sober and thoughtful. She further revealed that she often warned Catherine about mixing with the wrong crowd. On the night of January 6th, 1999, Curtis Sr. went to get his car fixed at a local garage, leaving Sonia, Catherine, and Curtis home together. Shortly before 7 p.m., Sonia sat down at the dining table to spend some time working on a jigsaw puzzle. It was a 500-piece puzzle depicting a pastoral scene of a covered bridge over a stream. Nearby, there was a 500-piece puzzle that had recently been completed by the family. Sonia was unaware that in the other room, Catherine and Curtis were getting ready to put a grim plan into motion, a plan they had been conspiring for the past two weeks. Just a couple of days beforehand, Catherine and Curtis had removed their father's gun from its locked case, and then gathered bullets and an ammunition clip from another storage location inside the home. As Sonia put the pieces of the puzzle together, the siblings quietly entered the dining room, Catherine was armed with a 9mm semi-automatic gun. She raised it and pointed it directly at Sonia before squeezing the trigger. The bullet hit Sonia in the chest, and she crumbled to the ground, clutching tightly to her chest as blood pooled on the floor. Catherine then handed the gun to Curtis. He moved closer to Sonia and continued to shoot until the clip of the gun was empty. In total, he fired the weapon eight times. Three of the bullets struck Sonia, who was already fatally wounded. It took her just a couple of minutes to die. 
Catherine and Curtis then dragged Sonia's body into the bathroom and shoved it into the shower stall. They then turned to the bloody dining room and cleaned up the carpet with rags, bleach, and other household cleaners. The siblings then put the blood-stained rags into the washing machine and turned it on. It took them around an hour to clean up the crime scene, at least to the best of their abilities, but they decided they needed help. 13-year-old Amanda Richards lived a couple of doors down. She was Catherine's best friend from school. After shooting Sonia and cleaning it up, Catherine and Curtis ran to Amanda's home and knocked on the front door. Amanda's mother welcomed the two siblings into the home, and they hurried into Amanda's bedroom. In a panicked tone, Catherine blurted out, I killed her. I killed her. Catherine and Curtis then led Amanda over to the house. As soon as she entered, she saw the blood-stained carpet. Lying nearby, she observed a gun. Amanda responded that she didn't want anything to do with whatever Catherine and Curtis had done. She advised them to go to the nearby home of Frida LaBeouf, who the siblings had come to love and trust as a second mother. As Amanda returned home to tell her mother what she had just witnessed, Catherine and Curtis ran to Frida's home. They told her they were in Catherine's bedroom playing with their father's gun. They claimed that Sonia startled them when she entered the room, and the weapon was accidentally discharged. Frida was stunned, but Catherine and Curtis weren't finished with their story. They then said that Curtis became frightened, took the gun, and shot Sonia again to ensure she was dead, because they were afraid of what would happen. Catherine and Curtis were in a state of panic, and Frida explained that she was going to call 911, but as soon as she went to grab her phone, Catherine and Curtis took off running. Police arrived at the home on Tope Street in a matter of minutes. Sonia was pronounced dead at the scene as detectives began searching for Catherine and Curtis, who were nowhere to be found. Darkness had already fallen and the temperatures were almost freezing. A police helicopter was called in to scan the skies, while sniffer dogs searched with their noses to the ground. The overnight search was unsuccessful, but shortly after 7.30 a.m. the next morning, Catherine and Curtis were discovered huddling together underneath a blanket in a vacant lot in the woods just off Hartman Street, about four miles away from their home. Within half an hour of Catherine and Curtis's arrest, they made a full confession to the murder of Sonia. They described how they had been motivated because they feared Sonia was taking their father away from them. They further added they didn't like how much attention their father was paying to Sonia. They said they planned on killing Sonia, then making it look like a burglary gone wrong or an accident. Curtis added that he had shot her multiple times to ensure she was dead and that she couldn't call the police. After running over to Frida's home, Catherine and Curtis panicked. They bolted back home, quickly packed a backpack with some clothing, and fled into the woods, where they were discovered early the next morning. In the wake of the confessions, Sheriff Sergeant Glenn Evers commented, I'm amazed. I can't imagine a 12- and 13-year-old making such a heinous plot. Brevard County Sheriff's Agent Todd Goodyear added, They were the three amigos, and along comes a fourth musketeer. Joan Heller, a spokeswoman for the sheriff's office, commented in the media, The children expressed the fear that the girlfriend was getting between them and their father. 
prosecutors announced that they were going to be deciding on what degree of murder Catherine and Curtis would be facing, and whether they would be charged as juveniles or adults. As that decision was being made, the sibling's defense attorney, Tony Hernandez III, commented to WFTV, their lives have changed forever. He further added that they were very remorseful for what they had done. Defense attorney Hernandez had taken on the case after learning that Curtis Sr. had allowed Catherine and Curtis to be interviewed by investigators without an attorney present. He demanded to be let into the Sheriff's Island precinct where the children were being held. He commented to the newspaper, Florida Today, They are in total shock. Their father is in total shock. He described how both Catherine and Curtis were in floods of tears over what they had done. Just the next day, Catherine and Curtis appeared in court for the first time. They both shuffled into a Brevard County juvenile justice courtroom. They were both shackled and handcuffed and stood before the judge. Curtis Sr. stood behind them with his head bowed, seemingly in shame. Assistant State Attorney Mike Bowen said during the brief court hearing that they would be asking a grand jury to allow them to try the siblings as adults. In Florida, children under the age of 14 can be charged with first or second degree murder, but only by a grand jury. If the prosecution was successful and Catherine and Curtis were convicted as adults, that meant they would be facing a potential sentence of life in prison. Juveniles convicted as adults serve their sentence at a state prison for young adults. If tried and convicted as juveniles, Catherine and Curtis would be released when they turn 19 years old or 21 years old. Assistant State Attorney Bowen said that the move was not purely an aggressive one. He explained that it was one of the few logical ways to approach the case. He stated, It is extremely complicated dealing with a juvenile in a situation like this. One of the issues laid within the fact that Florida had no facility for juvenile girls that are convicted of such serious crimes. Assistant State Attorney Michael Hunt then added, Treating them as adults does expose them to more severe penalties, but it is also a beginning for finding a sanction more consistent with the crimes they are accused of. During the hearing, Catherine and Curtis were assigned separate defense attorneys from the Public Defender's Office. Defense Attorney Hernandez had been representing them both, but now he was only to be representing Curtis. He suggested that police used unfair tactics to elicit the confession from the siblings, such as getting permission from their father to question them when he was in a state of shock. He stated, The confession was given with the consent of the father, as an individual and certainly not as an attorney. He was up all night. He was in shock. Judge Ed Richardson then ordered Catherine and Curtis to be held at the Brevard Juvenile Center, separate from the rest of the population and separate from one another. Over the forthcoming days, Curtis frequently asked when he was going to be able to go home. As everyone was waiting on the grand jury, Curtis Sr. temporarily moved out of the home where the shooting occurred and moved in with friends and family. Over a thousand miles away in Emporia, Kansas, Stacy said to the Orlando Sentinel, What is there to say? It's crazy. I don't get it at all. Stacy had been informed of the shooting by a friend who had seen it in a local newspaper. What struck Stacy as odd was that both Catherine and Curtis had told her they really liked Sonia. 
They had said the same thing to their father and often told Sonia that they loved her. The last time Stacy had seen Catherine and Curtis was in the summer when they visited her in Kansas, but she kept in touch over the phone. She commented that they both appeared to be doing well. Stacy stated, The thing I keep remembering is something Catherine told me when she was about seven years old. She was wanting to stay with me when she was out here, but she decided she'd better go back to Florida. She told me her daddy needed her. It was like she took responsibility for the family on her little shoulders. I thought it was so cute at the time, but now I don't know. Stacy said that the murder had come as a complete and utter shock to her and contended there was no warning signs that something like this could have ever happened. She suggested that Catherine may have felt as though she ran the home and feared that Sonia was edging her out. Investigators echoed this sentiment with Brevard County Sheriff's Agent Todd Goodyear commenting to Florida Today that there was no indication that Catherine and Curtis were harboring any negative feelings towards Sonia. While there were evident indications of trouble at school, Agent Goodyear said there was no fighting at home or yelling. On January 13th, Sonia was laid to rest. Around 300 people packed into a church near Mobile, Alabama. The grief of Curtis was on full display at the funeral, as he struggled to hold in his emotion. At one stage toward the end of the funeral, he lay across Sonia's casket and bid her one final farewell. A couple of days later, Sonia's family announced that they wanted Catherine and Curtis to be tried as juveniles as opposed to adults. Her mother, Juanita Coleman, commented, They're not adults. They're children. God knows I'm hurting, but I can't hate them. Just a few weeks before the murders, Catherine and Curtis were in Alabama with their father, Sonia, and her family. Juanita said there was nothing to indicate any animosity between the children and the adults. She stated, you can't hide that in a child. Catherine's defense attorney, Randy Moore, publicly stated, the law recognizes that kids think as kids. They are children, however grievous the offense alleged. Curtis's defense attorney, Tony Hernandez, agreed. He said that everybody needed to remember that Catherine and Curtis were children, children that needed counseling. He stated, they are nothing but the canaries of our society. We're setting a very dangerous precedent. Tomorrow, it will be eight-year-olds, and the next thing you know, we've lost control of the juvenile justice system. The decision would ultimately be up to the grand jury, and they were scheduled to be meeting just the following week. Before then, Curtis's defense attorney, Tony Hernandez, appeared in court and requested that Curtis be housed with a roommate because he was having nightmares while being housed by himself. He stated, He's just having a very difficult time sleeping when they turn the lights out. He's frightened. He's a scared little boy. The request was approved by the judge. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Public opinion on the case was just as divided as the prosecution and the defense. There were many who called for Catherine and Curtis to be tried as adults, but just as many who failed to see what could be accomplished by sending two children to life in prison especially children who were seemingly motivated by nothing else than an immense love for their father. Defense attorney Hernandez commented on this to the National Post. He explained that Catherine and Curtis had committed the murder out of love for their father. He said that was construed as a crime of passion as opposed to premeditated murder. He stated, The reasons they want to put them away for life are strictly punitive. Thank God they can't put them to death. Days after this brief court hearing, however, more disturbing details about Catherine and Curtis's plan were uncovered. According to 13-year-old Amanda Richards, the friend who Catherine and Curtis confided in on the afternoon of the murder, she had gotten off the bus with the siblings. She claimed that they were standing out in front of their house when the siblings claimed they were going to kill Sonia and their father. Amanda recalled, But I didn't believe them. I thought they were joking. Amanda described how Catherine and Curtis took her inside the family home and showed the gun that they had taken from Curtis Sr. They told her it was loaded. Still, Amanda didn't think to tell anybody. She didn't believe they were being truthful, at least not until she saw the bloody crime scene several hours later. The claim that Catherine and Curtis had said they planned on killing their father as well blew apart the defense's arguments that they had carried out the murder in love for him. But in the wake of Amanda's story, even more ominous information would float to the surface. According to Frida, the neighbor who called 911, Catherine and Curtis were being abused at home by their father. She revealed that Catherine and Curtis were beaten at home, and they had sought out refuge at her home in the past. She commented to investigators that Catherine and Curtis weren't bad children, but abused children that had finally snapped. She recalled, the last thing Curtis said to me was, I love you, Mom. They called me Mom. And don't you forget it. According to professionals, abuse and neglect are key ingredients in fostering violent children, and both Catherine and Curtis were reported to have bouts of violent outbursts in school. Children who come from abusive and neglectful homes can sometimes have trouble with anger management due to the fact that they have poor role models. As a result, they can have difficulty developing compassion towards others because no compassion was shown to them. The grand jury met toward the end of January, and psychologist reports were presented. According to a psychologist, Curtis believed it was only a matter of time before his mother and father would be reunited. When his father decided he wanted to remarry, however, his fantasy was shattered. There was no mention during the grand jury of alleged abuse like Frida had earlier claimed. 
nor was there any mention of the claim that Catherine and Curtis planned on killing their father as well. Curtis Sr. stuck to the same story the defense were sticking to, that Catherine and Curtis simply wanted Sonia out of the way. He said to Florida today, I feel responsible if I had paid closer attention to the way they really felt about Sonia, but they gave me no indication. Ultimately, the grand jury decided that Catherine and Curtis could be tried as adults, and they indicted them on first-degree murder charges. The decision made them the youngest people ever to be charged as adults in the county. The decision also meant that Catherine and Curtis were transported from the juvenile detention center to the Brevard County Detention Center, which was the adult jail. Catherine was the only female juvenile in the jail, and she was kept in a separate cell in the medical wing, while Curtis was housed with the other 16 juveniles facing charges as adults. In July, it was announced that Catherine and Curtis had reached a plea deal, a deal that would see them spend 18 years in prison. The plea agreement was the result of months of negotiations, and the wishes of Sonia's family were taken into consideration. Prosecutor Amy Tucker said, We had to balance the issues of protection of the community with the wishes of the victim's family. They wanted them to have probation and juvenile treatment. Catherine and Curtis appeared in court the next month, where they entered guilty pleas to second-degree murder. Circuit Judge Lober attempted to find a reason for the murder and asked Curtis why he had shot Sonia. He shrugged his shoulders. Judge Lober asked whether, looking back on the incident, he understood it. Curtis replied, no, not really. The judge then asked the same question to Catherine. Her face welled up with emotion and she began to cry before replying, sir, there was no reason. I may have thought at the time there was, but there's no reason to take another person's life. The sentencing was set for October 20th, and Judge Lober sentenced them both to 18 years in prison with probation for the rest of their lives. Catherine's attorney, Keith Sechaz, said his client was ready to make the best of her prison sentence. He stated, She wants to help other children, and she figures if she's in a juvenile facility, she can do things like teach other children to read. She understands this is her second chance. Outside of court, Curtis Sr. refused to make a comment, but his son's attorney, Alan Landman, commented, I think he just wants to get on with his life, but I don't think he fully understands what's ahead of him. In 2015, Sonia's now adult daughters, Jessica and Inez, were interviewed by Florida Today. They spoke about the massive impact the loss of their mother had on their lives. The girls had been raised by their grandmother, and Inez commented, Knowing that my mother suffered such a violent death only makes it harder for me to cope with the fact that she's gone, and my child will never get to meet his grandmother. Jessica said that her faith had allowed her to forgive Catherine and Curtis. She stated, God really helped me to forgiveness. I am a woman of God, and having hatred in my heart for them for the rest of my life wouldn't help me at all. The interview had come just before Catherine and Curtis were to be released from prison. Around the same time, the truth about the shocking murder of Sonia was finally revealed for the very first time. Catherine and Curtis had planned on killing Sonia, their father, and another male relative who had been living with them, who they claimed had been sexually abusing them. The Department of Children and Families had investigated claims of abuse from Catherine 
after a teacher had voiced her concerns that she was being sexually abused at home by the male relative. Catherine later recalled, He did everything but penetration. It wasn't rape, but it was touching, fondling, and oral sex. He would make me perform oral sex to the point where I would throw up. The Department of Children and Families found evidence of physical abuse and sexual molestation, but they decided to close the case when Catherine denied the abuse. She later said her father intimidated her into lying. Investigators told Curtis Sr. that the male relative shouldn't be staying in the home because he was a convicted child molester. He had been convicted of sexually abusing his girlfriend's daughter in 1993. Curtis Sr. failed to take any action. Catherine later said, He didn't believe me at that time, and it felt like he was taking sides, like he chose his relative over me. I expected him to be at the point where he would want to kill him. A couple of days later, Catherine was in the shower when she heard the bathroom door open. The male relative stood nearby and masturbated as Catherine cowered in the bathtub. Later that night, Catherine wrote in her journal, I'm going to kill everybody. This wasn't the first time that the family had been reported to the Department of Children and Families. Sometime earlier, Curtis told his mother that he was being sexually abused by a male relative. Curtis had told his mother that the older relative sometimes fondles him when they're in bed together. This had also been reported to the Department of Children and Families, but Curtis then claimed he made the story up. Once more, the Department of Children and Families closed the case. Catherine and Curtis had been let down by the system put in place to protect them, and they decided to find another way out of the abusive environment. Catherine told Curtis of her plans to kill everybody, and he said that he wanted to help. The siblings felt as though Sonia had known about the abuse and had allowed it to happen. The two then began planning what would have been a mass murder, but after killing Sonia, Catherine and Curtis panicked and backed out of the plan. The siblings' defense teams argued that neither of them had ever mentioned that they were victims of abuse, and said that if they had been apprised of such, that was a defense they would have considered taking. Unfortunately, the documents from the Department of Children and Families investigation, which corroborated the sexual abuse, were never entered into evidence. Defense attorney Alan Landman stated, It is somewhat haunting to me that there was a world of horrors that this child was growing up in that was never explored. As a lawyer, we are only as effective as the information given to us by our clients or that which we can glean from the charges and the discovery received by the state. There was absolutely no indication in the entire case of what was truly going on behind the scenes and in the life of Curtis and his sister. Catherine and Curtis had shared a pact of silence, most likely due to the fact that they had already been let down by Child Protective Services. While behind bars, Curtis had become an ordained minister, but his sentence wasn't without problems. In 2004, he and several inmates escaped after Hurricane Francis knocked down the outer fence. He was caught 24 hours later, and 318 days were added to his sentence. Catherine found love via a pen pal service. She had been writing to Senior Chief Ramos K. Fleming of the U.S. Navy, and, after a while, he began visiting her in prison. The couple were then married at the chapel at the Hernando Correctional Institution on November 27, 2013.
There was a tremendous fear that Catherine and Curtis would be unable to adapt to life on the outside and find their way back into prison. Florida's recidivism rates were extremely high, but over the past decade, they had improved to 26.3%, which meant that a little more than one in four inmates returned to prison within three years of their release. On July 28, 2015, Curtis walked out of prison as a 29-year-old man. He refused any interviews, but he was fully rehabilitated and slotted into society impeccably. Curtis went on to become a Christian minister in Florida, where he had two children. Shortly thereafter, Catherine was released. Unfortunately, the relationship with Ramos fell apart, but Catherine continued on her road to independence alone. She moved to Kansas, where she received a presidential academic scholarship for college. She found a job at Sonic and her own apartment, and in November of 2015, she met with lawmakers to lobby for a change in how youthful offenders are sentenced. Catherine went on to have two children and moved back to Florida, where she and Curtis picked up where they had left off. Today, she serves as the co-director of Outreach and Partnership Development for the Campaign for the Fair Sentencing of Youth. And uh, I was 13 years old um, when I was convicted and tried as an adult mm -hmm. for murder. Mm -hmm. And at the time, me and my brother were 12 and 13, and I believe we still are the youngest um, children to ever be um, convicted and sentenced to extreme sentences for murder. So I was sent to adult prison, and I spent the first three years in solitary confinement because they could not quite figure out what to do with me. And I got out when I was 30. And throughout that time, um, unlike a lot of my brothers that didn't know whether they were coming home or they were hoping to come home, I did have an out date. Even though in my 13-year-old mind, 2017, like cars would be flying, right? Like it's 1999, like 2000 wasn't even a reality yet. So at the beginning of my incarceration, I became a product of my environment. Um, you have a traumatized 13-year-old that obviously had some trauma because a normal 13-year-old doesn't think about taking another person's life. But because Columbine happened that year, nobody cared about the circumstances of what happened. All they knew was that we were the first national case of teenagers with guns and we were made the example. In 2018, Catherine founded Breaking Free MVMT, an organization dedicated to bringing enlightenment and clarity to criminal justice reform. She poignantly stated, My pain now has a purpose. The message is that youthful offenders have the ability to change. This episode was researched and written by Emily G. Thompson, editing and scoring by Corey Hiltman, script editing, additional writing, and production direction by Rosanna and Benjamin Fitton. For more on our series and notes on this episode, please visit theywalkamonguspodcast.com. And for more on the Law & Crime Podcast Network, please visit lawandcrime.com slash podcasts. This has been They Walk Among America. We will be back in two weeks. Thank you for listening, and please be safe.